Welcome to another episode of Business Over Bourbon, where we pour equal parts business knowledge and fine bourbon to make a truly memorable cocktail. Your bartender for the evening is Corey Perlman, who's a digital marketing speaker and consultant by day, and Jimmy Buffett impersonator by night. That last part's a lie, but a man can dream. And now, put your pencil in one hand and highball glass in the other. It's time for Business Over Bourbon. What's up, everybody? I uh, hope you're doing great. Another episode of Business Over Bourbon. I apologize for the delay in episodes. Been traveling a lot over the last uh, few months here, so I think I've, I've missed you for the past month. But I'm coming back with a vengeance because I've got a guest that I'm really excited about because we go way back. So just to make sure that he's live here, this guy is uh, one of the premier keynote speakers in our industry. He is uh, at the top of the game, man. He's at the top of the mountain, and it's just purely an honor to to have him here with me. So, Mark Sanborn, you with me here, bud? I am. Thanks, Corey. Great to be here. Great to be with you, with the bourbon, <laughs> the audience. Awesome. Yes. So, the way this works, Mark, is we, you and I will we'll talk a little bit about how things are going in life and business and all that good stuff. And while we do that, we'll sip on some bourbon and uh, talk a little bit about the bourbon that you've chosen that we'll get into in just a minute. Um, I also want to let everybody know that part of the reason that I'm, I picked Mark to come on the episode, uh, to come on the show this time is because he's got a brand new book out. And oh, and by the way, I'm working off of a green screen back here. I'm not going to lie because if it doesn't work, I'm just behind a gigantic green screen this whole time. So, and that's going to look really stupid, but hopefully things will be able to pop up behind me and look really cool with this green screen. So we'll see how that goes. But anyway, this is the book. It's called The Potential Principle. Uh, it's, it's Mark's latest book. I will tell you that one of the first books that I read fairly early on in my career, I'm not trying to date you, Mark, or anything here, but you know, I'm still on the, on the south end of 40. And one of the first books I ever read with Joe Hart, uh, give a shout out to our buddy, was The Fred Factor. And uh, it literally helped change and, uh, the trajectory and all that good stuff of my career. So you're one of those guys, man, that I put at the Mount Rushmore of people who have influenced me in my life. So I really appreciate it, man. You've, you've, you've given a lot to me. And again, it's just super honored to be here. And once again, man, you've come, you've come with uh, uh, all, all, uh, all blazing here on this book here, The Potential Principle. So looking forward to get into it. Um, Mark, what do you got going on right now these days, buddy? What's, what's happening in, in, in life in general for you? How's the family? What's going on? Well, my family is good. I've got a college student and a high school senior, and uh, my wife and I, we live here in southern Metro Denver, Highlands Ranch. My office is in Lone Tree, which sounds extraordinarily bucolic. They're basically suburbs of the Metro Denver area. You know, I give speeches. I write books. Uh, we have an online presence for training products and resources. I advise leaders, and I do uh, some um, investing. So those are really the things that create revenue for me, but the point of my arrow has always been keynote speaking, and this is my 31st year in the business full-time. If you count from the time I gave my first paid speech, it's my 40th year in the business, but I was part-time uh, for, for nine years before I, I uh, made the move into professional speaking full-time. So the new book's out, the, profesh uh, the, pro <laughs> the professional, I haven't even drank the bourbon yet, <laughs> principle. And, uh, and, uh, you know, we just launched that a few weeks ago and 
you and I do go way back, and Joe Hart, who uh, is now the, the head honcho at Dale Carnegie, you and I knew him when, right? I tell you, man, I know. I hope he still remembers us, you know? Yeah, and I hope he actually hires us. That would even be better. <laughs> even better. He, and he would say the same thing for us. <laughs> <laughs> so it's good to be with you. I'm, uh, I'm glad to talk about the book and whatever else comes up during this uh well, well, one thing you just mentioned, Mark, I kind of want to, uh, you know, just take you back. I'm sure you get asked this question a lot, and it's it's something I know a lot of speakers will be watching this, but 30-plus uh, years in, in the business, if you had to kind of reflect back and do it again, uh, anything that you would change, uh, what are the things that you, you kind of didn't know you were doing right that you did right, or some advice that maybe you'd give to the younger version of Mark if you were doing it all over again? Well, that's a good question. You know, I think a lot of what we do in this business is, is uh, context specific. Sometimes I hear people say, you know, I'm, I'm going to do what fill in the blank John Maxwell did or Brian Tracy did or Jim Rohn did. But what we forget is, is that those people all highly successful in their own right did what they did at a very specific time in uh, our history and our culture and in the, 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 uh, the business professional speaking. So I, I, I wouldn't change a whole lot of what I, I did, even though a lot of what I did early on isn't as relevant now as it was then, because it was, uh, it was context specific. I think that's the challenge is that how, how to be relevant in the moment and how to stay relevant over the long haul. There are a lot of speakers uh, that have been in and out of the business, but for me, if I go to an NSA meeting or I see a speaker uh, on the platform that's been doing this 20, 30 years, I know there, there's something they're doing right, because even though I may not have heard them work, I know that the fact that they've been able to remain relevant through a couple of generational changes in the workplace means that they've cracked the code on how to keep bringing ideas to audiences that, I, you know, that audiences embrace. Well, one of the things that I know you, you once said to me, I've never forgotten, because uh, it's always in the back of my mind with my, my slacker personality sometimes, is you try to get a book out every, I think you said 18 months. Is that right? Or is it? Yeah, 18 months to two years. I, I took a tiny hiatus between uh, the last book and the potential principle. But yeah, that was my, my run rate. And even that was a little um, time specific because... Writing books isn't easy, but selling books is really, really hard. And, you know, in NSA and other circles, you'll hear people say you need a book uh, or that people will say you have a book in you. Right. And uh, my friend Suzanne Roanne says, uh, uh, Susan Roanne says, you know, some, for some people that book needs to stay inside them because it's not that good a book and you don't need to just write a book to get it out there. And in hey, I, you know, I was talking to some folks and, I was reminded of something my friend Charlie Jones said. Charlie said, your speaking will get better if you're a student of the craft. But when you write a book, it's frozen in time. You may go back and, and re-edit it, but for the most part, once you write a book, that snippet of history is embedded in time. And even if your writing skills become better, that particular book stays the same. So I, I guess I would caution people not to get too giddy about getting a book out, just to have a book out. You need to have a book out because you've got an important message that benefits your client or benefits the reader. And this idea of just having a book to have something to sell is a very dubious proposition. 
Yeah, and uh, I want to I want to get into actually the the meat of this um, again. You know, just kind of taking everybody a step back for a second. If you haven't read the Fred Factor, um, part of the reason that book meant so much to me was I mean, you're 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 a beautiful storyteller, and I just everybody who's read that book remembers you know the mailman Fred, you know, and you got that's a I remember the big the question you always got was was he real, right? You know, people always want to know is Fred real? Very real, right? Yeah, I talked to Fred last week. He's he's uh, still very real. He hasn't stopped being real. That you know, I, I think people are used to fable books, and they're used to speakers and authors taking liberty with facts and stories. But I, I like to say my life is far stranger than my limited imagination. So <laughs> I, I really uh, just basically paid attention after I met Fred for the first time back in. Uh, 1988. It's been a long time. Fred's retired from the Postal Service now, but he's still doing great. He's He's got two sons. He's got two granddaughters, and uh, he's uh, still up in North Glen, Colorado with his wife, Kathy, and he's, he's doing great. But, you know, the best stories, what, what makes a story really good isn't that it's my story or your story. Good stories are always our story. You know, there's a it's a narrative that you either recognize yourself or you recognize someone you know or you recognize a belief. And I think that, that the real key to storytelling is to make it inclusive so that it, people really don't care what I did, and they really don't care what I learned. As my friend Scott McCain said once, he said, people don't care what you did or what you learned. They want to know what they can learn from what you learned. Mm. So that's what a good story does. A good story is just a mental coat peg for people to hang ideas on. And, um, you know, my, my most successful books have been very story-driven. Uh, my lesser successful books have had stories in them, but they didn't have that centerpiece story of, uh, you know, the Fred factor. And my, my publisher used to say, you know, I need another Fred factor story. And I used to say, I wake up every day and I pray for another Fred factor story. <laughs> I keep my eyes open. I meet lots of interesting and cool people. I write down what I learned, but I haven't met another Fred yet. Those magic moments don't come every day, right? Well, once a career sometimes might be uh, more like it. But yeah, I mean, it's funny you say that thing about stories happen to each other because the reason I feel like the Fred Factor stayed with me for as long as it has is because I find other Freds everywhere I go. We always think about that no matter where we are. It's like, man, that guy's a friend. And just so folks know, if you haven't read the book, it's taking the ordinary and, and, and making it extraordinary, extraordinary service. That's what uh, Fred, the, the the postal man did. And that's what, you know, my flight attendant did two weeks ago. That's what I actually, it's funny. Uh, I was at the uh, the Delta Sky Club and the, the, the B terminal in, uh, in Atlanta. And this guy, I'll tell you, Mark, if you're ever in there, you'll, you'll know exactly what I was talking about. He welcomes you. He calls you young man. And he, put, he pats you on the back. It's just that level of service, you know? I mean, it's amazing. It's awesome. You know, I, I have a, and I have not memorized her name yet, but there's a, a young woman. By young woman, I mean in her early 20s. I'm 59 years old. So that's a young woman relative <laughs> to my age. And uh, she is so good. She, uh, you know, she, she always she doesn't flirt in a way that is inappropriate because frankly at 59, I know she's not flirting with me and I'm, I'm not arrogant enough to think that she's going, wow, this is this old guy. He's really hot. No, she's just a friendly, nice person. And she'll, she'll call me honey or dear, or, you know, and it, it, it's just endearing because it's genuine. It's authentic. It's kind of a throwback, you know, to the diners of the fifties and sixties. And when people inject, and I think that's really big now, uh, very time specific, especially with, you know, millennials, authenticity is so important that when people 
inject their true personality. They're not, they're not using a script. It's not a construct of some, you know, contrived personality. It's just who they are, but they're having fun with it. That's memorable. And, you know, and there's a lot of room for variety. I always tell my clients, nobody remembers same. You know, you don't go, hey, let me tell you what I, what I experienced yesterday it was the same as every other time I've done it. It's when it's different in a way that you either, if, if you value it, that's great. If it's different in a bad way, you know, you tell people that too. That's an excellent point. Nobody values same. That's awesome. That will be a, one of our tweetables for uh, tonight. So you mentioned our friend Scott McCain. Interesting you said him. Uh, he's the last speaker I saw. I was just out in, uh, uh, where were we? We were in, uh, where were we? We were in uh, Philadelphia and uh, at Scott Stratton's Speak and Spill event. And I told Scott about this little uh, bourbon journey that you and I are on. And Scott's like, how do I get on that show? So he'll probably be our next guest. But moving into that, Scott's a big bourbon fan. And I want people are probably dying to know what bourbon you chose. And um, the backstory is when I had you come speak at the Atlanta chapter in NSA, I met you at your hotel, we had a bourbon before we went out there. And I gave we you more, we had more than a bourbon. <laughs> All right. Well, I but mean, that's a story for a different day. It is. Well, you'll have to before the end of our night, you'll have to also tell the uh, vacuum cleaner story that we did. I think it was Danielle, right? <laughs> or whoever it was. Yeah, it was really that's another good story. <laughs> but you chose, dun, 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 drum roll, please. Breckenridge, a bourbon yeah. out of Breckenridge. Colorado. Colorado. Yes. And let me give you the backstory because actually Scott McCain and Larry Winget figure into that backstory. Uh, you know, I've, I've always enjoyed beer. My brother owns a, a craft brewery. I probably taste four or 500 different beers a year. I know my, I have my chops when it comes to beer. And I used to collect tequila. Larry uh, Winget also collected tequila. Larry Scott and I were on a program in all places, Manhattan, Kansas. And there are, is an amazing bourbon bar in Manhattan, Kansas, which was a pleasant surprise. We didn't expect to find it there. And I never drank brown liquor. I, I guess I grew up in an age where most brown liquor wasn't that good and it was hard on your head. And I certainly did not have a good reaction to it. But Larry basically explained to me that, uh, you know, and, you know, to Scott, that, you know, if you drank good bourbon, it wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't hurt you. That's pretty much true of any, any spirit. But we drank that night, uh, among other things, Breckenridge. Now, Breckenridge, um, at the time, it wasn't a blend back then, but at the time, Breckenridge, which is not made by the same people that make the beer, be very clear about that, Breckenridge Distillery and Breckenridge Brewery are two different companies. And Breckenridge was one of the few bourbons that scored as high as some of the Pappy Van Winkles, which, you know, is kind of the, the standard by which most bourbon geeks compare bourbon. And that's when I first drank it. And back then the distribution wasn't that good. So I would often send bottles to Larry and Joe Calloway and Scott McCain and, and Randy Pennington and the, and the bourbon airs, this glass, I, you can't see it because it's etched, but this is a bourbon airs glass. These five friends, uh, we, we get together, do business and drink bourbon. So that's, the genesis, but it's a it's a very very good bourbon at a very reasonable price point, which is a good thing. You know, sometimes you can buy cheap bourbon that isn't good or expensive bourbon that's good but costs a lot of money. Obviously, this is a bourbon that is reasonably priced. They have increased distribution, and uh, you know, I'll let you do the uh, the tasting notes. I'm always amused when uh, people go, you know, I can taste a freshly mowed grass mixed with straw in a, in a strawberry field on an autumn day when the temperature's below 40. You're like, seriously, dude, you're really overthinking that. But uh, totally. it's a lovely, it's a lovely bourbon. 
You know, it is. Uh, and I'm not, and I've been pretty frank and honest with uh, the, 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 the folks when we, we try some of these birds, some of them I don't like so far, but um, I, I was a fan of Breckenridge when we tried it uh, the first time there in Atlanta. And I've been a fan ever since actually you and I were supposed to do this show a week and a half ago. This is going to a testament to my uh, addiction to bourbon, but, uh, and, and I had to buy a second bottle because I really do enjoy Breckenridge. <laughs> I really do. I mean, I really yeah, like. Man, we were going to do that around breakfast time. That was going to be my breakfast bourbon, but uh, we were this at a, at a yeah. decent hour that will prevent my wife from having an intervention for me. <laughs> yes, exactly. I poured over your cereal. And by the way, if, if my wife ever invites you to an intervention, bring the bourbon. I just yeah, <laughs> you got it. You got a deal. That goes both ways, my friend. Um, so just you know, I always like to share you know with a little bit of the the facts of the bourbon that we're drinking. So the interesting thing about Breckenridge is it's a mash bill, as you mentioned, with a whopping 38% green rye. Uh, so I think as bourbons go, more rye than you often see in typical bourbons. 56% uh, yellow corn. So we all know that 51% or more has to be corn. So we got 56% in there. And then 6% unmalted barley. So, uh, and this guy, this review of whiskey here by Jake Eman says, if there is a high quality bourbon with a greater percentage of rye at its core, I'm not aware of it. So the average price for this one, as Mark said, very reasonable $40 uh, a bottle, which again, as, as some of you know, we've had Blanton's on here, we've had Basil Hayden, we've had some of the other ones that top $60, $70, Breckenridge at $40, very reasonable price. And you can, you can get it on, you know, here in Colorado, I don't know about the rest of the country, sometimes it'll be on for $32, $36, is pretty common here, uh, give or take two bucks. Let me, let me just throw in, first of all, I love rye. Not everybody likes rye. Rye is an acquired taste. I drink far more rye bourbon than I do just regular bourbon. But uh, there, there is no additional cost tonight. There is a, a fabulous uh, bourbon that is one of my all-time favorites, Jefferson's Ocean Reserve. And Jefferson's uh, puts their bourbon in a barrel, which everybody does, but then they put the barrel on a boat and drive the boat around the ocean. Uh, not around the world, but in the ocean. And then uh, the way that that ages, the motion of the boat, the salt air, it, it creates an extraordinary bourbon. And uh, that one's, uh, if you can find it, it's probably it's probably in the 65 to $80 range. So it's a little pricier, but that's probably one of my top five bourbons of all time. And, 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 you know, the story doesn't hurt, whether it's true or not. The story still, you know, I mean. I've seen the boat. It's not, you know, and by the way, it's not like a, a big boat. It's like a cabin cruiser. I was, okay. I was looking at this picture with this barrel, and I'm going, really? It's like they found some guy named Bob at a boat and said, hey, take this barrel, put it on your boat, come back in a few days, we'll pay you, you know, I don't know, however many hundred dollars. It was, it, it was fascinating. That's a you know, and I've I've heard that story, and it, it does, and it's a great bourbon. I've had it one time. We haven't had it on this show yet, so Mark, if you ever come back, uh, we well, have a different. Hey, if you have McCain on the show, you will not be hard pressed to convince him to the oceans. Resort. Okay, maybe we'll do that. Maybe, we'll, and then we will have you as a, a a guest interviewer, and you can grill McCain about that. Yeah, because right. he, he eats his steaks well done, which is criminal. That is pretty weird, Scott. We had, we're going to have to talk about that, buddy. All right. Well, let's move into our second segment here and talk about the book. So we talked a little bit about the Fred factor, and there was obviously a, a moment in time. You know, you had that experience with, with Fred, uh, the postman. What was the moment in time for you? What was the reason that you thought 
the potential principle, which uh, you know our friend Jay Bear uh, is an endorser on the back of the book. Rod Smith, famous uh, Denver Bronco. Robert Tucker, author of Innovation. A lot of you know high caliber people. Scott at- Stratton, by the way, talk about. Speaking of spill, okay. Scott's an endorser. Scott's an endorser of the book, another uh, uh, power hitter. So, what what was the um, the premise? You know, the, the the reason behind writing the book, Mark. You know, in, in our business, um, the people that hire us tend to be um, among the best at what they do. It goes back to that old cliche: the people that most need to hear their sermon don't go to church. Uh, the companies that most need your message can't afford or won't afford to pay for it. And so, a uh, long story short, most of the people I was working with most of the time were already very good. So, I wanted to write a book that would help people with the challenge that we all face, and that is the better we become, the harder it is to get better. You know, it's easy to go from, uh, you know, bad to mediocre, from mediocre to good, from good to great. But when you're already at the top of your game in any, any profession, in any business, in any interest that you may have, any sport, you know, it becomes much more of a nuanced uh, approach to improvement. So that's really what got me to write the book. And I, the book came out of a speech I've been doing probably for at least three years, maybe longer, called How the Best Get Better. Uh, the reason I didn't name the book How the Best Get Better is uh, Dan Sullivan, strategic coach out of Canada. He wrote a little book called How the Best Get Better, I don't know, some, somewhere back in the 90s. And uh, so I, I didn't, you know, I, even though you can't copyright a book title, I didn't want to go through the brain damage and look like an also ran copier. So uh, we came up with, you know, uh, the potential principle. The subtitle is how to narrow the gap between how good you are and how good you can be. And the the book focuses on two things, where to get better and how to get better. There are four quadrants that we call the potential matrix that focus you on areas that most people don't spend much time in. They spend most of their time in one of their preferred quadrants. So we talk about the four areas to get better in and the four ways to get better, the breakthrough strategies. And, uh, you know, and it was kind of fun. The book has um, little vignettes from about eight or ten high achievers. Some we've mentioned, uh, my, my friends, the Bourbon Heirs, uh, Nito Cubane, uh, president of High Point University, pastor, one of the pastors of my church, uh, just really successful people, because what I wanted readers to see is it doesn't matter what you do or how you want to get better. This is a system that can work for anybody that chooses to apply it. And w- one of the big questions I say at the beginning of the book is um, better at what? And the answer to that is better what you want to get better at, better at what's important. Maybe it's being a better parent. Maybe it's being a better spouse or a better boyfriend or a better girlfriend. or Maybe it's being a, uh, a better golfer being a better sales and marketer. In other words, I'm not telling people what to get better at. I'm showing them how to do it. Yeah, one of the things that I noticed was kind of a theme throughout the book, which I completely agree with, by the way, um, is complacency sets in, especially when you've seen success over over time, and how you kind of shake out of that. And I mean, one of the thing I've one of the things I've noticed just in this last experience I had at the Speak and Spill Meetup is even the people at the top of their game are learning and growing and improving and getting coaching as much as they did when they were at the beginning of their game. Is that fair to say? I would say at the beginning, you, you know, you're much more sponge-like. I remember in the early years of my going to professional association meetings, I had so much to learn. It was like drinking out of a fire hose. Right. But in some ways, it's much harder now in that the longer you've been in the business, 
the, the deeper you have to dig for something new. Uh, when you're when you're a beginner, everything's new. When you've been in the game 30 years, there's there's every bit as much more to learn as, as I had 30 years ago, but it's it's in different areas. It's in more subtle, more nuanced areas. By the way, how, how many people were at that speak and spill? Because I read about that. I did not know uh, Brother McCain was there, but was it a couple hundred? No, it was about uh, 70 or 80 uh, were, were at that group. Um, but we yeah, have very high caliber and uh, it just, you know, for me, it's, it's just a reminder that no matter how good you get the people who are at the top of their game, like you, you know, I, I use you as a great example. I remember you came to me for social media coaching at one point, you know, and theoretically you didn't need it, you know, and some of the most successful people that I've met in my life are always looking to learn. They never stop. They never turn the spigot off. And you're, you're a prime example of that. Well, I appreciate that. Part of it is, uh, you know, my, one of my favorite uh, mentors is a dead Brit named G.K. Chesterton, who said, the world will never lack for wonders, only wonder. You know, in other words, there, there, there's so much interesting, so much fascinating, so much awesome stuff in the world that when my kids were younger, you know, I used to say, they'd say, oh, I'm bored. You know, here they've got the best technology and 500 channels and the best educational system. And I said to them, boredom's a choice. It's not a condition. Mm. You may be bored, but take responsibility that you just lost your sense of curiosity for what's going on at the moment because the world hasn't become less less interesting in the last 20 minutes of the car ride. It's a function of your, you know, your predisposition. Mm. And, and that's th this book for me, every book's a little different, but this book for me was a lot of fun because not only did I codify a lot of what I've learned over the past 30 or 40 years, but it's probably a book that I use more day to day than my other books. My other books, I'd internalize. By the time I wrote the books, I'd internalize the messaging. Uh, and even though obviously I'm intimately familiar with what's in this book, it, it to me is, is much more actionable on a daily basis in so many areas. And, uh, you know, I, I often find myself uh, challenged by the, pre, you know, the concepts that I've written about. Mm. One of the things that you uh, touched on in the book that I thought was uh, interesting, or at least a, a word that I don't know, and correct me if I'm wrong, if you defined this or not, but um, autodidact? Autodidact. Autodidact. Uh, yeah. And you told me I need to, I want to be one. Why do, why do I want to be one? <laughs> uh, you know, that's... Uh, I, I ran across a guy, I, I believe his name is uh, William Hayes, years ago. He has a blog. He, he's up in years. I assume he's still with us, but he writes a blog about being an autodidact. All an autodidact is, is a person that has taken responsibility for their ongoing education. Uh, you know, that's that person you know that's uh, perhaps never been to college, but is brilliant and so well-read and so knowledgeable in so many areas. And what what... Hayes did uh, in this, this area of, of being autodidactic is he wrote voluminously on how to do it. He was an early influence. Uh, there are other great resources like him. Uh, one of my favorites, uh, I don't know if you, you read Farnham Street, but mm -hmm. Farnham Street's a fabulous uh, blog about thinking and reading and learning continually. And, you know, we live in an age where the hardest part is, is filtering out the stuff that's just okay to really find the best resources uh, for, you know, being self-taught. 
Because once you graduate from high school or once you graduate from college or graduate school or whatever level of education you, know, you last uh, were involved with, it's up to you. The problem is most people regrettably think that you know, their degree is the end of their education. I would suggest for most people, all a degree is is proof that you could stick to something for four or five years. Uh, I mean, think of how many people you know that have a degree in, you know, Renaissance literature that are selling copies. <laughs> right. Uh, so an employer certainly loves it when you have a very specialized degree. My son's majoring in aerospace engineering. Uh, that's wow. a pretty wonky area that is in high demand. So he will likely be able to use that degree. But but really, what a degree says to an employer is, I had the the perseverance and the discipline to stick with it for four or five years. And if you have to learn something different, you just need to use that same discipline and perseverance. The problem is a lot of people kind of quit learning when, uh, you know, when their formal education is. Uh, two more questions specific to the book. Um, one is, I'm going to plant this one for you, and then I'm going to ask you another one in case it takes you a second to think about. But you did a lot of research for this book, and uh, you're a great storyteller, and I know that that's a big part of your research. I'd like you to think back to some of the uh, research that you did and the different people that you decided to highlight in the book and the stories that that people who have um, – you know, use essentially the potential principle as part of uh, their growth. You mentioned Nito Cobain or something to that effect, but who was the one that stood out to you the most? And the second question is, if you want to answer that one first or second, um, is, you know, throughout the book, the theme is how do I get better? So uh, one of the things that I'm a big fan of with this podcast is actionable takeaways. So a couple things that people who are listening or watching can do this week, this month, uh, that maybe are a little stagnant right now that can kind of, besides obviously pick up the book, but to, to start kind of that growth cycle again, that, that momentum again for getting better. Sure. Well, I'll, I'll give you both a, a powerful question and a really powerful technique. But first, in the book, I have a lot of uh, professional colleagues and friends that have written about how they keep getting better. But for me, one of the all-time inspirations is Jack LaLanne. Uh, Jack LaLanne was the pioneer in fitness. He was the first uh, fitness TV show, relatively short fellow, worked out hours and hours a day, highly disciplined about what he ate. And in the book, I say, you know, if you don't think you can't get better, you don't know Jack. Because Jack LaLanne into his 60s and 70s and 80s kept one-upping his own accomplishments by being disciplined and doing things that would make his physical prowess better, if you will. Uh, one of the, I've studied the guy a lot. I've got books that are out of print about Jack LaLanne, and uh, certainly the fact that, you know, he, you know, pulled 70 boats with people in them with handcuffed and his feet tied together, you know, <laughs> Alcatraz Island in a heavy hurricane. I mean, no, I'm making the hurricane. <laughs> crazy stuff like that. I mean, just stuff that really, Read the book, or even if you don't read the book, just Google Jack Lane for a little guy. The guy's amazing. But what was fascinating is he was a really clever thinker. It, it, most people listening to this podcast were not alive when his show came on. I was like barely alive. I mean, I was born in 58, and this show was on in the early 60s. But Jack Lane would wear this one piece jumper right and, and the guy was super fit so he, he rocked the one piece jumper not like the old guys in the airport but he had a dog that sat in the frame of the of the show just sat there i i you know his dog was to people that watch the show was well known and 
the, why, why do you think he had the dog? Well, he knew that get, he was the first show, right? So it wasn't like mom was turning on TV going, I got to find a good fitness show. I wonder what's on the yoga channel. This was the first show. And as mom would be going through the four channels or however many we had back then, the kid would see the dog and want to watch the dog. Mm. and made mom no 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 don't turn the channel watch the dog well so now mom's stuck on the jack elaine show this really good looking white dog is in the corner the kids are watching and she ends up doing these you know kind of calisthenics and i thought man you know it's so simple and in retrospect so obvious but it's just a sign of a great intellect the guy wasn't just a muscle head he wasn't just about being fit matter of fact one of my favorite quotes which i don't think i put in the book um, for obvious reasons, is Playboy magazine interviewed him in mm, late 80s, maybe. Uh, and they said, and this was all unfounded, but they said, Jack, rumor is, uh, even though you don't eat sugar and dessert, you work out X number of hours a day, you're kind of a partier. And they suggested that maybe, you know, maybe he did an illegal substance or two. I don't know. But, but I loved what he said. He didn't say, oh, I do or I don't. He said, I put a lot in so I can take a lot out. And that to me made so much sense. This wasn't a guy that was fit and healthy because of some kind of uh, obsession. He just realized that the, the fitter and healthier he was, the more energy he'd have, the more vitality he'd have, the more energy he'd have. And I thought, isn't that the, the whole purpose? And, and that really, at the end of the book, I go, you know, why get better? If you're just getting better for yourself, that's pretty self-absorbent selfish but if, if you increase your abilities and your contributions you make the world a better place too and that to me is a win-win mm. well said my friend so what are some um what are some things that yeah folks can do yeah uh well here's the question uh of the four techniques the first one is disrupt yourself before somebody or something else does and so that's the question who or what in your life needs disrupted uh, if you wait, things disrupt you. You know, if you have an employee that's uh, become complacent and isn't carrying their fair share of the load, they're eventually going to quit or you're going to have to fire them. That won't end well. So maybe you'd be better served by disrupting that complacency now so they can get on track and, and become a contributor. Maybe you have a process, you know, going back to the social media. You know, when you and I first met, we knew a whole lot less about social media. It was a much uh, younger phenomenon than it is now. And so that really brings me, connects to, to, to the second point that I'll make, and that is always ask who before how. Mm. Who knows? Because if there's somebody already knows how to do what you want to do. And if you can find that person, you can hire them, read their book, rent their brain, take them to lunch. I'm, I'm a big fan of, of actually, you know, renting people's expertise and not asking for it as a as a kind of a entitlement or a handout but the point is how many times do we reinvent the wheel and we go through the painstaking labors of trying to figure it out only to find out duh somebody else has been doing this now for five years and if i had just done a little bit of my research i could have found out what they already know so that's the second the, the first question is who or what needs disrupted the second point is think who before you think how that's great and on on the screen here it's going to hopefully say those two points right here and right here if it all works and if not i'm just gonna look like an idiot <laughs> so we'll see how that goes uh that's brilliant mark i mean again i just uh uh those two things alone and that's a it's a beautiful point because in the world of in the digital age that we're in right now uh you know first of all you can probably 
find out who pretty quickly, right? By, by typing that in. So there's this whole world of information that we can soak through, but then there's this sphere of influence that we all have. And like you said, you know, one of the things that I learned from you again, is just kind of uh, going back to you and I is I had so much to learn from you, but the, the thing I remembered thinking about was what could I do to help you before I asked in return for, for help? And that was in the speaking business. And so social media was all I had, you know? And so that was my, my chip, you know? But you know, it's, I wrote a, I wrote a blog. It's been a few years now called always pay for free advice. And, and the whole premise of the blog is you may not have the money to pay for advice, but like you, and that's one of the things I appreciate about you, Corey, is you, you just naturally had that mindset. You didn't want to just take without giving, you know, you wanted to, and, and you said, you know, that your chip was, you had the social media, which for me was very helpful. And, and so I always tell people, don't, you know, if you take somebody to lunch, find out what you might, maybe it's a book recommendation, maybe it's an introduction, maybe it's a referral, but there's a, there's a hundred things you can do to create value for people short of writing a big check. And by the way, the, the quicker you write a big check, the, la- the less likely that's the best way to repay somebody. Not that they won't appreciate the money, but, you know, get creative, find out, you know, what's important to them, how you can help them and, and keep it, uh, you know, keep it reciprocal. I've had, I've had lunches where people made me pay for their lunch. That, that actually was the last time that happened. That was the first and last time. But this person sat there at the end of lunch after picking my brain for 90 minutes. The bill came and I realized it was worth paying the bill just to escape because mm. they were, you know, that deer in the headlights look. And uh, it was obvious they were not going to pay for the bill that they incurred picking my brain. But, you know, such is life. You learn and, and hopefully you move on. You know, um, are you? Uh, let me ask you this question real quick before we move to the last segment here, and then I'll, I'll let you let you go and finish your bourbon there. Uh, do you read the reviews uh, that come through on Amazon like you used to? Is that something you still do, or what, what's what's your feeling? I still on that? read them, but I don't read them like I used to. I used to read them like with fear and trepidation. Um, you know, a, a bad review could ruin a couple of days, which was silly. But you know, I I remember for me the epiphany was. Some years ago, I was talking to John Maxwell. John Maxwell and I are friendly. We, I count John as a friend, but we're not, we're not close friends. We don't get to hang out very much. But he's a good guy, and uh, I, I was talking to him on the phone, and I just read some kind of scathing review. And by the way, I don't mind reviews that give me information I can use. You know, constructive. I, yes, constructive feedback. I, I wish he had expounded on, told more stories, told less stories. But, you know, the stuff that makes you nuts is, uh, you know, where you, People just assume things about you, your motivation, and, you know, it's just an insult. And I said to John, I said, how do you deal, you know, with those negative reviews? And he said, ah, you know, Mark, I I write books to help people, so I don't have to deal with the reviews. And I thought, duh, you know, did you write the book for the review? I mean, certainly we want good reviews. I don't think any author would honestly say, oh, I don't care about my reviews. Sure you do. But if that's your highest priority, you're going to write a different book than if you're writing a book to help people. And so that, that was so helpful for me because I spent way too many days, months, weeks, years obsessing over the cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs people. And there are a few of them out there. I mean, you know, um, you, you always have to, if you're going to read the bad reviews, you read the good reviews too, because somewhere in between, you know, that worst review and that glowing review lies the uh you know the essence of the book well one one thing to to say that uh, i know you you believe and 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 others do too is that you know if we're writing books that aren't getting at least some constructive feedback we may not be writing the right book we may not be saying 
you know, We're what not we... challenging people. I mean, if I always tell people, if you, it doesn't take anything to agree with me. You got, you <laughs> agree with me without thinking about it to disagree with me, whether you drew the right conclusion, or not, you at least have to think about what I said. So at some level you can, you can say that, and I, for years on the platform said, my goal is to challenge your thinking, not to create agreement. Um, more often than not, you know, people agree with your conclusions, but if you get them to think, you know, you've, you've been of service. Uh, have you, uh, the, any reviews that you've read so far, positive ones, I'd lo- love to hear that kind of uh, hit, hit, hit your heartstrings a little bit that uh, came through that just stood out for you? Uh, well, the, the reviews so far, I don't want to jinx it, you know, because it's, it's <laughs> some, somebody could be like, you know, <laughs> testing I'd be, you know, removed from the planet uh, from my, my last book. Um, what, what I always like, what I always enjoy most about any review uh, is when I see what somebody learned that I didn't have in mind when I wrote it. In other words, you know, you give a speech, you write a book, and somebody comes up and says, you know what I learned? And they tell you, and you go, really? Yeah. Hadn't thought about that. Mm-hmm. But it was a legitimate lesson, and it actually, uh, it, it unpacked your idea for you. I. I was teaching the uh, the potential matrix, these four quadrants, to um, some folks in the Five Friends Intensive in Phoenix a year ago. And somebody came up and said, I don't know if you thought about this. And they, they drew this pattern over the graph. And it was like, oh, my God, that is so cool. And that's the power of cumulative expertise. And that's when you partner with your audience, you partner with your reader, you partner with your client. You don't come as uh, the person with all the answers. You come as the person with some good answers but even better questions and and that's what i enjoy most is when i read something and and somebody legitimately uncovers for me uh an an idea that i didn't have necessarily in mind when i wrote it well i want to say again um you know one of the uh uh, (laughs) my book my my bookshelf if i i would mess with all the wires here and turn it around are filled with mark's books um, I've, I've read them, I've, I've enjoyed them, I've soaked them in and I've used them. So um, I would encourage each and every person who's either listening to this or watching, I'm showing the book now. And if you're listening to this, it's called The Potential Principle. Uh, probably the easiest thing to do is go to Amazon and search The Potential Principle or you can search Mark Sanborn. And One other thing, by the way, let me just interrupt. If they go to potentialprinciple.com for at least the next couple of weeks, they can get a, a, an autographed copy. Uh, through a link there. It'll oh, say, awesome. Principal. go to Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, buy it wherever you want. But if you want an autographed copy, I've signed book plates that will be in those books. And there's a little bit of a discount there too. So it's more on par with Amazon. So the potentialprincipal.com is where they go for that? No, the, just potentialprincipal.com. No, the, good for you. Good domain. Nice work. Potentialprincipal.com. We'll put that in all the show notes here. Uh, it'll probably be on the green screen behind me here, but potentialprincipal.com. Mark Sanborn, again, our guest here. Uh, one or two more questions here. Final sip, Mark. Again, uh, cheers to you, my friend. Thank you so much for this time. I, I literally learned, I mean, I'm just like, I'm, I'm, I'm oohing and on over some of the stuff that we've already talked about in here, uh, which I really appreciate. And I get to drink bourbon with you, which I always enjoy doing. Uh, last questions are really just about legacy and leadership. You know, um, you have done a lot in your career. And so what's next, man? Like what's uh, next five years, 10 years for Mark Sanborn? 
Well, certainly, I, I haven't uh, tired whatsoever of speaking. I love to speak. Flying, perhaps, I'm not as keen on as I once was in hotel rooms, but, you know, that's occupational hazard. Um, I, I have uh, I have another book under contract, which means uh, I probably will write at least one more book. I'm at the point where I don't want to just keep writing books unless I really feel you know, strongly about the books that I'm writing. You know, I'm looking for, I, I have a, kind of a good challenge or a good problem and that is uh i've created a business that's created excess capacity in ways in terms of time uh, i've built a team and processes where i can continue to speak and write books but actually still have time to pursue other things and for me uh two things are paramount one is is uh, intellectual stimulation the other is is doing things that make a positive difference i know it sounds cliche and corny but i actually believe the stuff I write about making a positive difference. And so I'm just looking for those intersections between what's new and exciting that will, will, will make a difference. I, without seeking them out, I've got uh, some, some mentees right now that are a hoot. I just enjoy watching their successes. Um, I, I have some, some business investments. I advise some, some uh, entrepreneurs and small business owners. And so that's a long way of saying, you know, I'll continue to speak and write books and develop training materials, but there's always, uh, I'm always looking for new opportunities uh, that are intellectually stimulating and that, uh, that make a positive dent. So what, what's up with these? Uh, are you doing any of this? Is it cryptocurrency? Is that what it's called? Are you into that? Yeah. At all? <laughs> uh, blockchain? No, I, I'm learning about it. That to me is, uh, that to me is really interesting stuff that isn't quite as relevant for, for my purposes uh, what's a really interesting area, you know, I live in Colorado, the Mile High City, for a reason, Denver, uh, but hemp, which does not have the hallucinogenic component, so you don't have to get hung up on legalities and on, on the ethics of that, uh, but hemp is a really fascinating uh, uh, source of a lot of good things from fibers and, and uh, materials for building as well as for textiles as well as oils and things that can, can be helpful. So that to me is far more applicable. I have a, a friend in the business and I have some, uh, some uh, CBD oils that are fabulous, you know, that really help. I'm a pretty active guy, even though I'm an old guy. And so uh, that, that's an area that I'm learning more about right now. Just one of many, but not that more than Bitcoin. Bitcoin. Yeah. I <clears throat> just hear, you know, everybody's a, a talking about it. Some people think it's, it's going to be their ticket to millions and then, or, or ticket to being broke. So research blockchain because the underlying okay. technology to Bitcoin has far more potential than ah, interesting. The blockchain is what you okay. So that's essentially the transactional piece of it. Is that fair? Well, think of it as the, the secret sauce that makes Bitcoin work, but it can be used for so many other value producing things other than, you know, currency exchange. Okay. Fair enough. Mark Sanborn, my friend, I appreciate it. Um, I will just end on the fact that uh, I would encourage everybody to, if you've listened to this, just to, to, to connect with Mark any way you can. Uh, the guy took all the advice of social media. He's uh, on Facebook. Uh, he's on LinkedIn. I think you're tweeting and such too, right, Mark? You're doing a little bit of that here and there? Yeah, I tweet every day, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, a little bit of, of, of stuff at Instagram. And if anybody wants to visit the mothership from when, from whence all things flow, marksanborn.com. 
That's right. And most importantly, though, a, uh, a great family man, a great husband and a great dad. So I'm going to let you get back to that, my friend. Thank you so much uh, for being here, Mark. You are awesome. And again, it's the Potential Principle. Potentialprinciple.com is where you'll get the book, the signed copy and a little bit of a discount. Mark, thanks again. We'll talk to you all of you soon next time. We'll see you soon on Business Over Bourbon. Thanks for being here. Take care.